The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm pleased to welcome Alex Dunstan to today's show. Alex has a portfolio of different roles. He's a partner at uh, Early Stage Investor, Satch Invest, a co-founder at The Bakery, who describe themselves as a pioneer in accelerating open innovation. And he's also an angel investor. So, uh, Alex, with all those projects to occupy your day, thank you for putting some time aside to join me on this week's episode of uh, Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. I'm excited. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Good stuff. So, Alex, how did you first get involved in investing in technology startups? So I came from what I think is a weird route. I came from a world of marketing communications land. I worked for many years at MNC Saatchi Group looking after big clients like Google, DirectLine, Heineken. Um, I ran a strategy unit there. And eventually I did um, an acquisition. We bought a company called Inside Mobile that I kind of hustled my way onto. and. That was really the, 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 the turning point for me because we bought this company that's been phenomenally successful now called MSC Saatchi Mobile. Um, it's made the Saatchi Group a lot of cash, won them a lot of big clients like Amazon and Microsoft. And basically I hustled them. I said, look, we, you, you run a business which is backed on, based on backing entrepreneurs in service businesses. Why not back entrepreneurs in tech businesses? And so they did. It started as, as an experiment. Um, our first investment within a couple of weeks was CityMapper, um, which has turned out, uh, certainly on paper so far, to be um, a great investment. And, um, and since then, we've built the fund from there. So we've, we've got about 20 companies in the Search Invest portfolio. Um, and uh, we've been doing that um, for a few years now. And that's one part of my life. So investing in some of the best early stage tech companies. And I think there is product, it's product and users. We come from the world where we understand demand. So it tends not to be, we've got a tech, where's the market? It tends to be, we know users, we know stuff they want. And we really like people who obsess about customers, really understand the demand. And we think that's a really good shortcut for people who are gonna grow sustainable, good companies because I'll always be producing stuff people want. Um, so that's one part of my life. So that's an investor, but just being an investor would be boring. Um, so I, I also had a passion to operate and build a thing as well. And I was lucky enough to meet Tom and Andrew, my co-founders at the bakery, who basically four years ago in quite a visionary way, just saw this really inefficient marketplace. There's all these corporate, these huge problems. Um, whether it be people like the Deloitte's, the Barclays of the world, the GSKs, we work with a bunch of them. Um, and, and our mission was to actually get tech companies revenue. So how do you, you've got all these companies with all these problems, you've got all these tech companies out there who either don't know they're the right customer or they just don't know that they've got that problem to solve. And we've been running, I guess, a fork of an accelerator process that's been built up in the investment world in order to get tech companies real revenue. 
So there's tons of examples that I can talk about there. But fundamentally, my role in the world is there's a bunch of tech companies in the world, early stage. They need revenue and they need investment. And through those two different vehicles, um, uh, I or we can help provide those those two things. So what do you see as the, as the biggest challenges for startups trying to sell to, to large corporates? And how does the bakery help overcome those challenges? Um, so as you can imagine, there's a million and one challenges, but they fundamentally boil down to clash of culture. Um, it's really hard to get anything to trial and scale with a very large enterprise. So everything we do at the bakery is cutting everything out of the way. We get the person with the problem, we get the money, we create all the conditions to scale those up in the organization. And over the last four years have many successes of companies who've actually got through the corporate treacle um, and, and scaled up um, and you know, million pound plus contracts with huge multinational clients um, with our help clearing the way for them. So you're having a, a real impact and a, and a much, sounds like a very much a needed service you're providing. It's messed up. If you think about corporate innovation, I did a LinkedIn post once that said if corporate innovation was an asset class, it'd be the worst performing asset class in history. Uh, the amount of money and resources that corporates have is ridiculous. And we have a vision of the world that corporations should dwarf VC in terms of the number, volume of quality of innovation stuff they fund and distribute to market. Because think of the advantage, they have tons of cash off their balance sheets. They have tons of very talented people in their organizations who, if marshaled correctly, can be absolute kingmakers for these companies because the hardest thing for these companies is distribution. And if you talk about the Unilevers of the world, the RBSs of the world, the um, uh, GSKs of this world, the, the amount of access to uh, distribution channels these people have is incredible. And if they actually uh, organize themselves in the right way, and by the way, that fundamentally comes down to incentives then we honestly believe that uh, the corporate world should um, at least compete with, if not be able to trump VCs uh, for dollars. And, 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 and when I say incentives, one way to think about it is this. One of the reasons why corporate innovation has had such a terrible record over history comes down to incentives. There's a guy we've worked with very closely over the years called Jeremy Bassett used to run the Unilever foundry who gave this brilliant quote. And this quote was, if a salary man doesn't succeed with innovation, he doesn't get a bonus, but an entrepreneur doesn't eat. And everything in corporate innovation fundamentally comes down to the way people are incentivized. So at the bakery, partly through our partner programs, partly through other programs we run is all about take corporate dollars get the money into more entrepreneurial people and entrepreneurial structures in order to scale stuff to, you know, I hate saying this well, but to change the world and to produce breakthrough transformative stuff. And truth is it's hard, 
but over the last three and a half, four years, we've seen um, a bunch of corporates get there in quite meaningful ways. Alex, can you give me a, a specific example of how you've made a large corporate or influenced a large corporate in terms of, uh, of, of their innovation? Yeah, so we'll give you some examples. So, um, so I think to give an example, first of all, you just have to understand some of our beliefs in the world. Um, the first is that innovation can't be a separate thing. So there's all these labs and things to the side and they're all building stuff and they're messing about with stuff. But whenever you try and get something like that into the main business, it's almost universally rejected. It's like this big tissue rejection into the business from the business. Uh, so that's point number one. Second belief we have is that nobody has the best talent in their building in today's networked world where technology is so cheap. The idea that you in house can build the best product versus the world of brilliant talented entrepreneurs like that out there is just simply messed up. And the third one we call the build fallacy. There's, there, there's a real strong view that you should own things. It's a very, it's very much part of human nature. You should try and own something and build something. The problem is build. It, a, it comes down to can you incentivize people, right? But B, what happens when the money runs out? You're just going to keep getting bills to build and build and build. And it's like it's never ending pot of craziness. So anyway, I haven't answered your question yet, but I think it's important to give those those things as context. Um, an example of how, say, a bakery partner program works is this. You're somebody who works in a big company. Let's take one of our big management consultants. I can't give actual names, but um, actually Deloitte's one of our big clients, big global management consultant. They have um, uh, they use a lot of humans to currently process things in things like tax and audit and other examples like that. What we've done is we've introduced a number of AI based companies into that organization in order to get um, uh, AI doing a lot of the jobs that ordinarily humans would do. Um, and so again, I can't talk exactly about the companies, but uh, we've got companies million pound plus contracts in with these people um, solving real people's on the ground problems with technology solutions um, that, 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 that have scaled. Well, I can imagine a lot of startups out there be listening to this thinking we could, uh, we could do with some of that help, some of that support to get in front of those, of those large corporates. And we'll come on to uh, another topic, something that we spoke about recently. You mentioned that truly understanding customer needs was a massive issue for startups and scale-ups. Um, so how did you first identify that as a key challenge? And how have you helped companies improve their understanding of customer needs? I think when when I first came into Tech World, it was it was nuts. I, I called it like a marketing shape hole in that there was a bunch of tech people running around. They all had this technology. And everyone in their brain imagines that if they build a technology, the world will come. But the truth about technology is that distribution not technology is the single hardest thing and distribution requires understanding people's needs and providing the products that people love to fulfill those needs so 
at its heart, you know, uh, marketing, understanding needs, marketing's no, um, it's no different than just understanding humans and providing this, the 10 times better product that fulfills those needs and desires. Um, so, you know, even if you look at the, the big four, so people like the Googles, the Amazons of the world, right at the heart of the company, at the very heart, they just provided products that people absolutely fell in love with that supplied a need 10 times better than anyone else. Um, and it's kind of questionable. I don't know how much you can train that in people. You can sort of, you can definitely hire around it. But in terms of creating an obsessively customer-obsessed culture, like say a Jeff Bezos or Amazon does, um, I think you have to, I think as a CEO, you have to have that innate in your DNA. Um, and we've invested in a bunch of those, whether it be people like Robin at Dojo or Azimat at City Mapper. These are people who just really have the linky brain that can understand users' needs and can understand the products that can build against and they build organizations that obsess about that. It's like um, one of my favorite ways to demonstrate this is Jeff Bezos always says, you know, when I think about the future, I just ask myself, what will consumers not want? Well, they definitely won't want less choice. They definitely won't want stuff less convenient and they definitely won't, stuff, won't want stuff more expensive. So he just builds a culture Everything Amazon do is around producing something better for the consumer. It makes decision really easy, decision making really easy. And if you have a hard decision to make, you just go, what's best for the customer? And I think there's companies with that in the DNA and there's companies that aren't. And certainly I look for founders and people who are hardwired in that way. How do you make that assessment of a founder or a leader? So when you're being pitched, how do you figure out in a relatively short period of time, you've got to question and uh, and do your due diligence, whether that individual or that leadership team have really got the DNA to understand user needs. There's a few things. I found there's been one killer question over the years. And that killer question is, how do you test? And what I'm really looking for is how often do they test? So if if I had a room full of founders, and I asked them, right, how many of you have done user testing in the last month? A group put their hands up. How many of you have done some in the last two weeks? A smaller group put their hand up. How many of you done some in the last two days? An even smaller group put their hands up. And what I'm looking for is the people who are actually testing every couple of days repetitively, always trying to find out more about what the customer wants. One of the reasons we invested in Dojo is a great example, is when they talked about testing, they were like, we have spent six hours every night for the last week on the phone to our users. And this was when they had no product. They'd literally be following them around, asking them why, going into shots, like just obsessing about the user. Um, so for me, that's a killer question, like why they do this and understanding how they're answering the why is always really interesting. Some people talk about monetary stuff. Some people talk about technical problems to solve and other people just can't stop talking about the customer, the customer journey, the customer need and how they just don't understand how this exists. And it's the latter group that, that I get most excited by. Okay. So clear, a clear steer for anyone who's thinking of uh, 
pitching you for for funding but I'm intrigued how did you first come to this particular realization Alex that this was a fundamental criteria maybe even the fundamental criteria for CEOs and startups that you're going to invest in I think I think it's one of those things where it's always been our natural instinct right but when I first and it was definitely a gap that I noticed but when I started I obviously had no idea if I was right because you're learning this thing so it was always a deeply held instinct and over time you just get pattern recognition I guess from the founders who really make it and scale stuff up quickly versus not and by the way some of this is a preferencing it doesn't mean that you know highly technical founders who have zero sense of markets or needs or users won't succeed it just means it wouldn't necessarily be a fit for for us and our criteria so to be honest with you i think it's i think it's post rationalizing our instincts um but also like i think a lot of this world it's also just building up a pattern recognition over time Talking of patterns, I know you've got some strong views on uh, the pattern of uh, of founder CEOs and the path that they follow um, or need to follow as their company grows, as their company evolves. So tell me a little bit about your insights into the growth path of the founder CEO in terms of the way they need to evolve their behavior and their leadership style as their company grows. Yeah, I think another one of our investment pieces is humble learning machines. Um, because I think, you know, when you start on this journey, you have to be slightly crazy. Um, and again, that one of the patterns that we have is the people who are just like sponges are most willing to learn tend to be the most successful and one thing that I always say to CEOs and one thing I've noticed is that there's the sort of tribe around them um, just changes as they evolve and grow up from you know people with just a prototype trying to get a few users to people marshalling companies of tens and hundreds of, of people with bigger boards bigger demands you know these people are just growing up as they as they go um, so one thing I one thing I've definitely noticed and always try and encourage founders to do is always be thinking of surrounding yourself with the tribe of people who've seen the path ahead. So, you know, when you're very much starting with users, get the right product people around you, get the right early stage um, VCs or investors around you who can help you take it to that level. When you start maybe getting towards your A round and then let go to people who've literally taken the journey from A to B, um, people who've scaled up a SaaS sales team, people who've managed to recruit the best VPs around them in a SaaS business. You know, you're always looking, my, my view on the world is that you're the sum total of the people you spend your most time around. And I think you should always be evolving those people with the different skill sets who can help pull you up all the way along along the journey because it's so freaking hard and I believe one of the greatest things that you can do is simply use your network find the people who've solved any problem just before you um, who can help navigate you through 
because I think that time is one of the big factors when you're in a high growth scalable tech company. And I just think you can shrink the time it takes to solve a problem by using the people's experience who've done it before. Um, and so it's something that I've seen in some of the best CEOs we've invested in. It's something that I always encourage. Let's shift the focus a little to artificial intelligence. I know you've got some really strong views on the way companies are using AI and the hype surrounding AI. So where have you seen companies genuinely leverage artificial intelligence? So, you know, I think it's really difficult because you don't want to get into a debate about what is and what isn't artificial intelligence. I think the key, and of course, let's just accept it's a crazily overused buzzword. It's the thing that gets you your round of funding in the market that gets corporates really excited because they sure as damn don't know what it is and how it works and what some of these breakthroughs are. What, what I do see is, um, I guess it's, I, I guess the, the most frustrating but most interesting thing for me is artificial intelligence in, in corporates. Um, so everyone talks about AI in big companies, um, but the real struggle is getting the data set. Um, the truth is that it's really hard for these big corporates to get access to open up access to these data sets to really um, leverage the the breakthroughs in AI over the last few years. And so when people are talking about artificial intelligence in corporates, what they're really talking is a set of scripts. If this, then that. I think a lot of the language is actually around, there's actually been a, uh, what do you call it? There's been a a zeitgeist phrase put around it, robotic process automation, um, which is just basically a bunch of scripts going, if this, then that, um, just automating a bunch of what were previously human done processes. So I think certainly in enterprise land, the stage it's at tends to be very much, we're in a sort of automation phase rather than necessarily giving a bunch of data and letting the machines go at it and go tell us the answer. Um, there are obviously exceptions, but I think the truth is that it's still very nascent in the space, um, but so exciting, especially for companies. One of my theses on AI is that, you know, rather than at the horizontal layer, uh, the people who do vertically specific applications and can scale those out, um, we uh, will be winners. So we've invested in things like um, companies who are automating the creative process. So how can you take images and tell people which things to put in an advert that will um, uh, that will work the best? So a company called Picasso Labs, uh, they basically break down an image and they'll say, well, actually, you should use the blonde woman rather than the brunette woman in this ad or they'll go, you should use this image with sky rather than that image with wood in it. So uh, we like things that very vertically uh, solve a particular problem, applied AI. Um, that's just one thing that we go for. And any other verticals that you think are particularly relevant or particularly ripe for being uh, exploited by uh, AI companies? Yeah, I definitely think, so we deal a lot with the consultants. 
So again, I can't talk about specific examples yet, but if you imagine things like tax, audit, uh, processes, um, we've already seen huge successes with companies in that area where they've basically taken what were quite manual processes, run the computers across them, um, and found massive adoption in, in those companies. And I know you've got this sense that there's a, a huge shortage of strong sales talent out there. Why are you so convinced about the lack of quality sales talent? I mean, you see it on the ground. I mean, like one of my views on the world is that you've got, it's very zeitgeist now, right, to go out and raise rounds and rounds and rounds of VC funding. Like the vanity metric is how much did you raise at what valuation? But if you turn that on the head and actually go, wouldn't it be great if I gave away zero equity? Wouldn't it be great if we just actually went in and sold this thing by getting you know, the best enterprise salespeople around us? Um, you know, certainly, like, it's very difficult to do comparisons and you shouldn't really. But if you look at, um, let's take the West Coast and the ecosystem over there and some of the, the enterprise salespeople over there who are phenomenal and, by the way, compensated um, uh, accordingly, um, uh, it's incredible and can make such a dramatic difference to a company. I think I just get a bit of a culture over here that we're just a bit shyer about selling the quality of salesperson across the board uniformly isn't as good. Of course, there are brilliant exceptions, but I've just noticed when companies do get the, the, the very best um, sales VPs, it's absolutely transformative to, to the business, but they are genuinely quite difficult to find. And they're especially difficult when you interview them because they all sound brilliant, but to get the people who really deliver tends to be, tends to be a, a gap. I mean, I think there's gaps everywhere if you compare it unfairly to Silicon Valley, but that's certainly one that I see. So what advice do you give to your CEOs on hiring exceptional enterprise sales talent? I get, I'm a believer. So lots of people say don't pay recruitment fees, but I know a couple of the best recruiters and I would always say get some of the best ones around you to get the very, very best people. Uh, the second thing I say is, you know, I think the CEO's job, the very best CEOs are, they're, they're selling all the time, right? They're selling their vision to VC, they're selling to people who who come and work for them. And there's there's a thing that that has always struck me, which is how do you, when you are trying to recruit the very best people, think about how you can offer them their dream job. What would it be that you could make happen for them? What are the questions that you can ask to find out what their dream job would be and how would you make that happen for them? Um, that's a form of selling in itself. Find out what they want and give it to them. And I think that I've seen some really great CEOs do that even at the earliest stage where they go above and beyond to go, how do I make this be a perfect job for you? It's very compelling for a human to go, I've got another human here who wants to make my dreams come true. So, you know, I get the best, the best advice for a CEO is to be a great salesman yourself, paint the picture, paint the vision, find out what they want and give it to them. How do you see the next three years shaping up for the bakery? Uh, so for the bakery, we've already opened two offices around the world. So we're expanding internationally. Uh, so we'll expand internationally, 
grow our client base. We'll invest in more companies um, as well as run these partner programs um, and just grow. But we'll grow organically. We've never taken a penny of investment. Uh, we've got everything we've got just through selling stuff. And we'll continue to do that because we work with a tribe of people who we love in the office. We work with the kind of people in corporates who are great to be around and get stuff done. And we're a network business. So we work with a group of the best entrepreneurs and accelerators. And if you're at all motivated by the life you lead and the people you're around, like it's a fantastic, um, like we just love every day because uh, we're surrounded by the most energizing, fun, explorational, open-minded people. Um, and, and in quite a unique space, right? So we've got, like I said, we've got the network of corporates, we've got the network of investors, we've got the network of entrepreneurs, network of accelerators, like across the whole ecosystem, we've deliberately and painstakingly built up real relationships. So anytime we get a big corporate problem, we have, we can go and do what I talked about earlier with the CEO, we can go and find people who know the right tech company to solve that problem or can help us solve our own problems. It's very much the sort of reciprocal entrepreneurial tribe thing going on. Sounds like you've got uh, an amazing culture and a lot of variety going on in in your world. Every single day must for fresh fresh challenges and uh, fresh adventures for you. It'd be boring if not, right? <laughs> okay. Um, boredom aside, what's the most shocking or surprising thing that you've learned about startups and scale-ups? It surprised me initially how much the VC thing was growth at any cost and how disposable a lot of the companies were. So because of the model of VC, you know, you have a certain return profile over a certain number of years and it's like a Darwinian jungle. Like there's some people who will keep going up that growth path, but if a company for whatever reason can't quite grow that quickly, then, you know, more companies would die than otherwise would than if they were sustainable. And I had to learn that that's just the game. Like in my instincts are all about grow great, high growth, but sustainable companies. But the reality of VC is that it's just a bit more of a Darwinian jungle and the, and the model is to invest in 25 and maybe three to five out of those will hit in some way. Um, so that was a thing that I definitely had to get used to just because of how my brain's built. Um, yeah, I think the other shocking things were lots of them, like I've, I've already said, lots of them weren't necessarily great at, at selling um, and or marketing and understanding users, which is why going right back to the beginning, those that really care about users and product really tend to stand out for, for me. Yeah. It sounds to me as if you do a lot of mentoring of the businesses around you, of the CEOs, whether that be um, the, the ones you've invested in or the, the ones that are involved in your ecosystem through the bakery. Um, who who do you have or who have you had as a, as a mentor who's really influenced you and helped to, to shape your ideas and your approach? Yeah, it's dead true. Like, um, I had one of my best compliments the other day where one of our founders said that I was their first call when they had a problem and they wanted to be honest about a problem. They didn't want to mask it or pretend. 
Like that's the cool that I want to be. Who's helped me over the years? Again, just like um, like anyone, I've had a bunch of different mentors who've helped me at different stages um, throughout my career. So I wouldn't necessarily say there's been one person, but there's been a bunch of people that I've learned from through the years, whether it's, you know, I just pick, I'm like a magpie, so I pick little bits from different people. So I've learned how to scale and operate large companies from David Kershaw, Jeremy Sinclair, the partners at M&T Saatchi Group. I've learned about operational discipline from people like Tracy and Layla at Kindred. I've learned, I guess, sort of mindset life stuff from people like Doug Scott, angel investor, who I chat to a lot about that kind of stuff. I've learned sort of like mental models on life from a guy called Justin Parker, who sort of coaches Olympic athletes. I've learned, I, I learned stuff from my founders, Tom and Andrew. I learned how to sell through Andrew Humphreys, my co-founder. I've learned sort of systems thinking through Tom, my other co-founder at the bakery. I just think so, certainly for me and how my brain works, like I just try and pick the very best bits of a whole range of people. And, and to be honest, books, this will sound, I don't know how to make this not sound really wanky, but books are my mentors. Like I try and spend as much time reading and learning as possible. Like I just think there's, there's nothing better in life than accumulating knowledge. Um, maybe my wife and my sons wouldn't like me saying that maybe it's not better than them, but there's, it's great. Like to just learn as much as possible is the most fantastic thing. So what are your favorite books, Alex, books that you recommend for, for anyone who wants to, uh, to learn more about how to succeed in, in, in startups and scale-ups? So uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily like, I'm sure there's loads of people who give like proper business book recommendations. It's probably more interesting to tell you about the books that, changed, that came across my life at certain stages, which helped change my life. So the first, um, which I think is a genius book if you come from a sort of salary man, corporate man life was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because it taught me about assets. Um, even though like, you know, I don't know how credible the guy actually is as a book to teach you about models of the world, to teach you about how building assets is better than being a salary man. That's a really important book, which is if you're young or new to investing or life, I think everybody should read that as a sort of really basic, easy to read thing. Uh, Power of Now was important at one stage just to make me chill out and relax. I used to be really intense. Um, but Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle where it just taught me how to meditate and just take things easier. And that was really important for me at one stage in life. I've learned a ton of things about investing um, through, like I've just tried to read what all the best investors do. So there's a brilliant book by Jesse, uh, Jesse Livermore, Adventures of a Stock Trader, which was a good first book into the world of the stock market and investing. But I've read like Buffett, there's a guy who does a podcast called Ned, Ned Faber, who I find good. So, uh, so again, it's just a bunch of stuff who I try to learn life stuff from, really. Um, yeah, but like there's a million books. Like there's a really good one by Matt Ridley, Rational Optimist, which just talks about how even though people think the world is getting worse and worse and worse, like empirically it's actually getting better and better and better and talks about how we've involved as networks of people 
um, over time, which is really good. So, so yeah, some great of tips. millions of them. Some great tips there, Alex. It sounds like you're a real sponge for for learning from a diversity of a, of sources. So that's a, that's great to hear. Um, we'll wrap up there. Um, a very big thank you for joining me today, Alex. You've really come up with a huge breadth and depth of, uh, of insights for our listeners. And I'm sure now you uh, want to put some time aside to, uh, to go off and meditate. <laughs> Good man. Thanks a lot for having me. Really enjoyed it. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 